0: Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today we're heading overseas to the Gulf Islands of British Columbia and to one of the most beautiful, secluded, and delicious restaurants in all of Canada. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Thanks, as always, for joining me, and welcome back to the Chef Demoni podcast. Just over a month ago, I was married right here where I'm recording, in my hometown of Gibsons, British Columbia. Very soon after that happy event, my wife and I started our honeymoon reasonably close to home by taking two trips aboard BC Ferries and arriving in Sturdies Bay on Galliano Island in the southern Gulf Islands of BC. We arrived about 8 o'clock at night, and it was dark, and it was quiet, gorgeous, really just what we were looking for after all of the wedding mayhem. We stayed at a really lovely Airbnb cottage in the midst of an organic garden. Our hosts invited us to help ourselves to the garden, and their only request was that we make sure to close the fencing every time we went out, because if we didn't, in their words, the deer will clean us out in an hour. Anyway, we enjoyed three brilliant days on Galliano. We browsed the bookstore, we went for walks on beaches, where we actually saw some whales for about 20 minutes one day just swimming by, bobbing along, and breathing. And, of course, a particular highlight of the trip was dining at Pilgrim Restaurant. I'm going to come to that experience soon, and then move on to the interview with Chef Jesse McCleary of Pilgrim, but first just a bit of housekeeping about the show. Plans are coming together for the third, but hopefully not final, stage of the honeymoon, and this will be in a few weeks in, where else, Las Vegas, Nevada. So far, we've got plans to meet up with my new Vegas lawyer friend, Laura Tucker. You'll be hearing from Laura on an upcoming episode of Chef Timoni. and that's going to be at an event called Sour Saturday at Atomic Liquors. I'm really excited about this, both because we're going to meet Laura and her friends in person for the first time, and because I've been wanting to go to Atomic Liquors for a long time. Apparently, it was the first issued tavern license in Nevada, and its license number is actually 00001. Fantastic. Can't wait to see this place. So they're hosting an event called Sour Saturday, and that's going to be a beer festival Entirely devoted to sour beers. And fear not, I will bring a full report once we're back from that Vegas trip. I'm also hoping to meet up with Chris Kim from Faces and Aces Las Vegas and with um, Sonia Swanson from the Spicy Eyes podcast. Fingers crossed the dates are going to work from Chris. Sonia is actually in Vegas, but Chris will have to travel in from LA. And we've been having a back and forth lately on just where we might meet for dinner. So leading contenders for that are Sparrow and Wolf and the Golden Steer, which is a classic Vegas steakhouse. I've never been to either. Both are on the uh, to-visit list for sure. So maybe dinner with Chris, maybe brunch. It will depend on, if you can hear some dinging in the background, that's the pressure cooker. I've got a curry on the go for dinner tomorrow. Anyway, uh, hopefully I will be able to meet up with Chris. Hopefully he'll be able to make it in from L.A. Uh, Timing will dictate when we can meet up. Maybe dinner, maybe brunch we'll see what comes together. I've also reached out to a few other Vegas contacts, so I'm hoping to bring you a few interview snippets from this upcoming trip. Anyway, fingers crossed, we'll know soon. And what else? Some other upcoming shows. This weekend, I'm going to be meeting with a new connection here on the Sunshine Coast to talk about all things fermentation. I'm thinking an episode devoted to that topic would be a lot of fun. Just Think what great things come from fermentation. Sourdough bread and beer spring to mind immediately, and then there are the arguably healthier sauerkrauts and kimchis and on and on. This time of year just feels like the season to ferment, doesn't it? Another thing on my mind lately is regulation and the impact that it has on the food service business. I read a really interesting post recently about the difficulties that a very small player in the business had just to get a license from the city of Vancouver, a business license. So I just may reach out to the people behind that business. This is an issue I've heard raised before and I think it's worth a discussion. If you've got any thoughts on the topic, I'd love to hear from you and I'll tell you how to get in touch with me at the end of the show. Okay, back to Galliano Island now. I did have an idea that I would try to pair this interview with Jesse with one on natural wine because that's such a good fit with his approach to his restaurant, but timing hasn't worked out to bring those two together. But no worries, that topic would fit very well with fermentation too, so we'll get to it one way or another. In any case, my wife Bee and I dined at Pilgrim on the Friday night of our visit, and then we returned the next morning on the Saturday to meet with Jesse for the interview. First, the meal. Really, genuinely remarkable. They do a set menu only. It's listed as seven courses, but really it's closer to ten when you count uh, a few snacks and a few treats that they send out that aren't listed on the menu. And you'll hear from Jesse how cooking on the island is different than it is cooking in the city And what this kitchen puts out would be incredible in any setting. The fact that they do it with water restrictions and power outages and, and missed ferry sailings is just plain amazing. Fermentation features prominently in the techniques at Pilgrim, just as very locally sourced ingredients feature in the product choices. I won't take you through a typical review of the meal, but I will say that the alkaline noodles in a bacon dashi with black garlic were one of the best things I've ever eaten. And I got Jesse to talk a little bit about alkaline noodles and just what they are. Have you noticed that these are popping up on menus all over? Well, I finally learned a little bit about the chemistry behind them, and you will too in just a minute. Anyway, not just the noodles, but the bread, the grains, the beans, the veggies, the small but precisely executed protein servings, everything was spot on at Pilgrim. As was the service, it was friendly and attentive and fun and competent and informed, but it was never annoying or cloying, I I just really liked everything about this place. And we actually bumped into Friends of Bees at Pilgrim, they were there visiting friends of theirs, and they sent us over some bubbly to toast the wedding, so how great is that? Oh, and one question I gave Jesse is one that I ask a lot of chefs, and I think his answer is really important. It gets to the relationship between guest and restaurant, and really the extent of the demands that we should be making of each other.
1: It's just a lot of extra work. It adds on like three hours to a day, and you're already, you know, we're doing like 15 to 17 hours every day. So to add on to make your day 18 to 19 for one extra guest is really tough sometimes. You'll
0: hear more on that topic in the interview itself, and at the end of the show, I'm going to invite all of us to think about just what impact our expectations can have on others. Anyway, it's just a thought. I also love Jesse's tips for home cooks, which is basically, use more scraps. Don't throw away nearly as much as you're currently throwing away. Anyway, that's enough from me and in this introduction. Let's go now to Galliano Island, in the beautiful Gulf Islands of British Columbia, and directly to the deck outback of Pilgrim Restaurant... Here's my talk with Chef Jesse McCleary. All right, here we are on Galliano Island on a beautiful, what are we, Saturday morning? Yeah. Yeah, Saturday morning, end of September. Already? S- already, I know, it's crazy. Sitting up back on a beautiful patio with Jesse of Pilgrim, and I know you've got some timers to listen for, and you'll need to jump up in a minute, but thanks for taking the time to be here. No so B and I, who's here <laughs> observing the interview, we were lucky to join you last night. It was our first time. And as I was saying to you at the end of the evening, it was was absolutely fantastic. I did have high expectations and, and you guys <laughs> went above them. So I want to start with a day. Di- I often start with background and how you got into cooking and that kind of thing. But I want to start this interview with a dish and it's the alkaline noodle dish. Can you describe the components of that? And I'm thinking what in particular is standing out to me is the bacon dashi. Like okay. What, yeah. What goes into that? How did you do it? How did the idea come to marry that with black garlic? Cause man, that was delicious. I, w- I want to know how to do it.
1: The, yeah, the, ba- <laughs> the, bacon dashi is basically just a, like a vegetable broth almost, but it's kind of like all our, our scraps to be honest, that we keep back yeah. from lots of different vegetables. So whenever we eat, were trimming kohlrabi or... Un- almost a loss of vegetables and just byproducts we either ferment all the trim or dry them in the dehydrator like when we do tomato water we'll keep back all the skins after we pass them through and let them drip and then dry them so we have a big pantry upstairs of like dried items from last year fermented dried vegetables so it's almost just like a a veg stock made with all the last year's fermented and preserved vegetables and then all the bacon skins that we hold back when we make our own bacon and black garlic, the skins, just after we use the black garlic, we keep all the skin. So it's almost like a byproduct, a dashy basically. And yeah. Just yeah. Yeah, kelp from just down the road. Right.
0: Amazing. And it works. And do you just, uh, you take all of those pieces and simmer them together? So yeah. Just simmer.
1: basically simmer it and then let it sit for a while and then just pass it. Pass let it, it. Let it drip slowly. And then. Strain it off and there yeah. you go. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. How about the noodles? How are those?
1: Noodles—it's it, just like a class, or um, almost like a classic, just like a, a ramen noodle, basically. Um, use a- alkaline salt, so potassium carbonate and sodium carbonate, and just organic bread flour, high protein. Uh, and then we make like changes often. Same thing as kind of like a byproduct noodle, so depending on vegetables if we have a lot of leek tops we'll make like a really green water or like kale stems we'll make like a really green kale stem water and then use that water to make the noodles so these are like the ones you had last night were a kale noodle so just made right. with green kale water yeah yeah and the alkaline really salts and, yeah, and just gets that firms them up and it makes them chewy and it kind of impedes them from absorbing too much water the alkalinity right okay so they kind of stay chewy more chewy than you know your average like a spaghetti noodle for instance
0: right when you say alkaline noodles i i now understand a little bit about the or at least the names of the chemicals the chemistry behind it but is are those typical of ramen noodles like could you are they
1: interchangeable? Almost that term. Like yeah, if I'm yeah. Well, ramen yeah, like, noodles, they yeah, are most, alkaline? like I'm. Yeah. To, to be honest, I don't know a ton about yeah. like the different regions of the. Like, I know like a lot of regions in Japan have like a variation of like ramen. Probably changes region to region. Yeah. Um, but most of them are alkaline, so they would use like kansui, which is basically like an alkaline solution. Okay. And then I mean, I think a long time ago it was probably just the natural spring waters that were used that were high in alkaline that were made to new- make the noodles, and it just holds up to a hot broth really well. Right. Instead of overcooking, continually continuously
0: okay can you tell us a bit more about the fermentation i guess processes that you use you're talking about scraps and fermented vegetables and i noticed fermented components in so many dishes last night but maybe just talk a little bit about the i don't know
1: what you would call it fermentation program or approach or how you guys yeah. do it it's su- super simple like most of the stuff we're doing now is just like when we have too much of something or like you know there's a lot of hackery turnips harvested and we'll use them fresh and then if there's just too many we'll just a lot of times just one or two percent salt maybe some honey and some herbs and we do stuff in crocs sometimes but depending on space in the kitchen it's a lot it saves time and it's a lot i guess cleaner and more foolproof we use vacuum bags quite a bit which is it's kind of nicer fermenting old ways in crocs which we do but especially this time of year with fruit flies are so attracted to ferments, it's a lot easier to just kind of salt and vacuum bag. And then that way you guarantee there's no air getting to it. Right. Um, Fruit flies can't get in and (laughs) save space as well. So we can just pile them away on a shelf instead of having crocs everywhere. For sure. um, Yeah. But basically it's just trying to, you know, oh too much of a harvest that we get, just trying to preserve for the winter. It's nice to have those flavors in the winter too, where you know, we're just kinda of stuck with winter squash and kales and potatoes, which are great. You know, we're looking forward to those now, but you know, dead of winter you're kinda of getting tired of them and you have just different flavor components to work with. Like lots of dried fruits and fruit juices and stuff like that. It
0: when you say one to two percent salt is that so are you making a, a brine then uh, depend- or no, so, sorry, sometimes- by weight. okay kinda. yeah
1: so well, that way like the dry ferments yeah so like in the vacuum bag we'll just take like if you have a kilo of turnips like, depending on how what we want we'll do maybe you know one percent to that kilo right so 100 grams Okay. Or sorry, 10, uh, grams, 10 grams, 10 grams of salt, right? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a salty, Some be a salty <laughs> be yeah, some Which turnout. has happened here before. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, brine solutions different. Sometimes we'll do 4% brine or 3%, sometimes 5 okay. depending on what we're doing.
0: Talk a little bit, please, Jesse, about kelp as one component, but maybe pull a few. I know there's so many close connections that you have with farmers, with foragers. I understand you do a fair bit of the foraging yourself. Maybe
1: just give us a sense of where the ingredients are coming from a pilgrim yeah so like the kelp we like a friend of ours that lives i guess mid-island or you know 10 to 10 15 minutes from here he let's us use his canoe and he's there's a big kelp bed right outside his property so we just take the canoe out like 10 minutes not even sometimes five minutes off the water or the shore and try to preserve as much of that as we can, especially... We go through quite a bit, dried kelps, fresh kelps, and then we pickle a lot and smoke it and we just make powdered seasonings and just for broth. So, like, it was probably kelp in almost every dish in some way or other. Just for, like, we don't mention it or anything. It's just kind of, like, for flavoring broth or steeping in or, you know, seasoning with, a, like, a salt, like, kelp salt. It just adds a lot of flavor. And then just a lot of stuff around everywhere, fur tips. I mean bed straws different weeds and stuff so depending on the time of year this year like then how many people we have every year it's tough to get out there sometimes but um, do you mean how many people you have in terms of staff yeah and then just you know usually the times when there's the most stuff out to forge is the busiest time in the kitchen too so it's you know (laughs) (laughs) trying to balance yeah trying to get up a bit earlier every day or and just to get out there for a few hours but
0: Right. right. And that's the same time of year. I'm guessing that the guest
1: numbers are Yeah, so it too. just gets busier right. usually when there's more stuff to get out. I mean now there's chanterelles and stuff coming out here and it's slowing down a bit, so that's nice, but Still is tough to compete with, especially here with the locals that know all the hotspots. That sure <laughs> <laughs> they're always a day behind them. So. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Picking up what's left. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And maybe talk about that rhythm of the seasonality. Talking to her server last night, she was saying that um, you know the season will wind down toward, I guess, December and then you'll take a break. But yeah. is it um, and when we were just two days ago when we first arrived, we were at the bookshop and we were the only two people in there and the guy who was sitting behind the counter, he said wow, you guys came at the perfect time. So it's just, you know, a lovely day, a bit gray, a bit drizzly, but dead quiet. Yeah, it's but, my but, favorite time of year. Yeah, <laughs> <really>. <laughs> after the shell shock of yeah, the Yeah, it slows down. Like
1: after the, I guess, the September long weekend, that's kind of like the drop-off quite a bit but i mean you still see quite a bit of travelers or and it's just a different type the ones that kind of wait till the kids are back in school and it's a bit more quiet for sure so it slows down it's still september's pretty busy still in some ways but it is a lot slower and then you know october just keeps dropping so we used to stay open all winter and just close for maybe three weeks four weeks depending it just makes more sense the storms are kind of getting seems to be getting worse every year and then power outages more frequent So we still don't have a generator. So, I mean, last year was bad. We lost. There was like a stretch of 12 days with no power. So it just makes more sense to kind of just close it all down, empty the fridges, give all the equipment a break. And then you don't have to worry about the power going out and canceling reservations, which happens a lot just because it's, it's tough yeah. like, like technically like legally we really probably couldn't open because everything water like the well runs on an electric pump so there is a bit of water left but if the power is out we shouldn't be using water because the pump will run dry and then somebody comes to a point where you can't really wash your hands even right so right. <laughs> you know you could truck in like reserve water but it's just it's just a lot easier for sanitization and you know like the bathrooms cannot be used either with the, when the power's out so you could cook by candlelight we've run out of power before at the end of the night and there's you know maybe a couple of dishes left to go out which is totally doable but if it happens Mid-service before we open, too. or yeah. even mid-service, mid-service, we'd yeah. probably finish the night. But before we open, it just—it's just too many variables of stuff that could go wrong, and I uh, just—you know—not being able to really <laughs> wash your hands is right away. You know, don't open. So. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's—it's it's bad it's a tough one to call because you know a lot of people have traveled here, they've been here for a few days, you know, they paid for an accommodation so it's it's tough so when you have to close because there's no power so in that time year just makes sense for us to just shut her down and you know it gives staff a break and then i can go do something else in the city for a bit and then all the equipment's resting you know do some uh, upkeep your painting you know so right. Right. Fix-it jobs, if I can actually do them, maybe. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> very handy yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: I've definitely got some more questions on the menu and, and food here. But while we're on the the down season, uh, any plans in? I, I'm going to guess Vancouver, maybe Victoria. Any thoughts on what you might
1: do this winter? There's some uh, pop-ups that I should know. Nope. <laughs> yeah. No. Not nothing in Sandstone. Might do. We did a few. Well, we did one last year, like a sourdough pizza pop-up at my friend Dave's at Ubuntu, it's on Fraser Street. <laughs> So we'll probably do some more of those this winter. Hopefully, we've been talking about that. So look forward to those. It was fun. He's got really nice deck ovens at, at Ubuntu, so we just did like a sa- like sourdough pizza pop up. Basically, we did ninety two pizzas last time. I think so. We're gonna try to do those like at least maybe once a month. We were talking. We'll see. So that'd be fun. Beautiful. Try to keep busy and then you know got to still pay the bills. So gonna make some money <laughs> <laughs> right through the winter season yeah.
0: for sure. How long has Pilgrim been open?
1: This is our fifth summer. Yeah, I was kind of loose track. This is, yeah, fifth summer. There technically sixth, but the first summer wasn't really Pilgrim. We were kind of just opened up at the back into tacos, like hand-pressed tortillas, and, uh, while we were kind of renoing the dining room a bit. so that And we didn't have a liquor license because it had elapsed from the previous owner, so it took like almost, you know, eight months to get it back. So it was a kind of a summer of just doing some nice food and farm, you know, really simple vegetable dishes out on the patio only. And so I don't really count that as... The first year of pilgrim, so uh, yes, this is our fifth summer.
0: What have the numbers been like, and what has the response been like? It seems that, from what I perceive and reading in the press and talking to people, it's been positive from the get go. Have you noticed an increase?
1: Any? Yeah, it's tough to say because we've changed the formats a bit over the years. So, like we used to do bigger numbers, but it was shared plates, so it was technically less food leaving the kitchen, and we were like the seating time wasn't as long, so we could we do like upwards of, you know, 40 was pretty average in the summer to like our busiest night was 62, you know, 40, 50 was kind of average, like in peak season. And now we kind of can only really do 25 to 30 people a night just for the tasting menu, the seating time. It's like a two and a half hour seating roughly. And then just, it's tougher to flip tables that way. And then also like the amount of food leaving the kitchen with 25 people is probably 250 plates technically. So when we were doing tasting, many there's probably about maybe even when we were doing forty people a night, there's probably like hundred and twenty plates leaving the kitchen. So right. that that's changed. So like I think probably that's about, it's pretty, stayed pretty steady demand wise. I mean, we could be doing more people. There's always a wait list because we can only we cap it at twenty five to thirty. So we could do more if we had more space and. Bigger kitchen, bigger kinda, kitchen, yeah, more staff, and, yeah, and, yeah and more yeah. equipment. So and right, right, right. and the associated it's, headaches of yeah. <laughs> so I'll expand this formula. Kind of works. I'm happy with this one. This mm-hmm. is the first year we've done just tasting menu only. We used to we did it a few summers ago with options. So there's a smaller a la carte like shared plates menu. <laughs> And tasting menu, I'd say about 80% of people chose tasting menu, which is great. So, this one's a few courses bigger. It's seven courses plus snacks and like little things. So, it adds up to about roughly 10 things. So, with 25 people, the formula works well in terms of like able to keep the doors open, pay everyone, make money. And I find the wear and tear is a bit less having 40 people coming through every day, you know, capping at 25. And then the amount of food leaving the kitchen, the pace is good. So, kind of gonna stick with this one for a while. Right, <laughs> yeah. right.
0: Yeah, it seems to be working. Yeah. How do you deal with the challenge that every chef faces with uh, food preferences, food
1: allergies, that kind of thing? Do you guys, yeah. are you able to to accommodate that? We try to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's getting every year crazier and crazier. It seems mm-hmm. like we have like kind of not a waiver, but on our website when you book it kind of basically mentions we have a tough time with gluten freeze and dairy freeze. It's because we use a lot of grains, all the breads, and we mill a lot of, we mill like probably seven different grains a week. So we kind of save for, for like true celiacs where it is actually quite like a severe allergy that it's really risky just because when we're we mill like every couple of days quite a few grains and like this fragment or like particles in the air the noodles are always on the menu in some way or other there's always the breads going like the dessert tonight's based on brand so it's all the byproduct from milling so for true celiacs it's kind of really risky we haven't had a problem but and then, but just for dairy-free and gluten-free, especially that one combined is really tough for us right. <laughs> in terms of, right, yeah. I mean, like, it's a lot of, no to, yeah, to do the 10 or seven to 10 courses, it's a lot of prep. And so like when a specific like, one person comes in that cannot eat 90% of it to reprep a whole separate menu and there's only quite often two of us in the kitchen, it's just a lot of extra work. Right. It adds on like three hours to a day and you're already, you know, we're doing like 15 to 17 hours every day. So to add on to make your day 18 to 19 for one extra guest is really tough sometimes. So, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure everyone's feeling the same thing. Just, yeah. I think so. We were
0: in Las Vegas a couple of years and talking to a friend there who's a pastry chef at one of the big restaurants on the Strip. And he'd been there for 20 years. Like, this restaurant had been open for 20 years. And I asked him what the biggest change was. And he said, everybody has allergies these days. Yeah. Everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then you find out that most of them really aren't allergies. Right. Honest. You know, like, even we had a gluten-free last week. I think they said there was an allergy, actually, and then they ate the bread. So I mean, you know, (laughs) I (laughs) don't know. I don't know. It's it's, it's a tough one. So it's it's, yeah, and it's everywhere now. Even like talking to like friends that they're European, they work in different countries. It seems that took a, a bit longer to get there than some places. I'll talk to someone in Denmark and like they don't see it as much, but even now, like talking to them five years now, like mm-hmm. five years ago, they didn't see it as much, but it's kind of creeping everywhere. It seems like <laughs> everyone's <laughs> got their own special dietary needs now.
0: Do you find a difference in the diners, in guests between, and I appreciate it's driven in part by the experience that you're offering, but it seems to me that people are able to breathe and their shoulders can relax a little bit more on Galliano than in the city. So do you find people are digging into the food more here, into the experience more than they do in the city?
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, the island's probably half of it, like, for sure. So, I mean, people are probably... I guess a bit more relaxed, you know, like ha- if they really love the meal, like half of that's just being on Galeano, I'm sure, you know, and the other half's maybe the food. So it's a huge part of the restaurant is just our location, you know, and just people are here generally to get away for a few days. So they come in a bit more relaxed, hopefully. So it makes our job easier, for sure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're in, a, in a better mood to yeah, start, yeah. To start with. Know, it's like, you know, getting here, just, you know, fighting for a parking spot or traffic or like stuck on a bridge, so... You know, it works to our favor for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How about
0: like the staffing issue? Uh, I know with chefs in the city, certainly on the Sunshine Coast where we are now, it is it is hard to find yeah. people. No, How is
1: it here? It's getting harder and harder every year. Especially like whenever we hire, like in the spring, I kind of do worst case scenarios to everyone. Like there's not much to do here. There's like no nowhere to go. Well, there is, there is stuff to do and stuff to go or places to go, but... Compared to a city, like, at the end of the night, there's not really anything to do after work. So, you know, do you like to read and watch movies? or? And we do work long hours, so, I mean, they're probably pretty tired anyways. But I kind of paint worst picture, worst-case scenario picture. And then so when they get here, they're like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not, not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, losing someone, like, last this year we lost someone, like, in kind of right when the peak season was starting, and that one really hits us hard. Because it's really hard to convince To find someone who's looking to maybe leave the city for the summer especially in like mid-june like they probably the people who are looking for that have already found something and then just to give in someone to move out here you know it's not just like starting a new job it's like coming all the way out here and then we have to find housing if we can house them or not so that's tough one too so we can house two people which is great without that we'd be really screwed but uh just finding housing here is really tough because we do need staff like front of house if there's like no one on island that's available for like the the work that we need or like the schedule we need like finding someone off islands quite easy sometimes but finding them somewhere to stay here is next to impossible sometimes Mm so a different struggle in the city but the same it's thing, a, like staffing is getting harder every year, for sure. Yeah. Can we go
0: back to the menu? I've just got a few other dishes that I wanted that I want to dive back into from last night. One was the the albacore tuna, and how did you do the kohlrabi? Our server said it was pressed. Was oh, it yeah. Was it
1: mandolin? No, it's or, like a saying? it's a Japanese tool. It's, it's almost oh. like a mandolin or one of those spiralizers, but it's a yep. sheeter. So it's the same kind of mechanics. Like it's got a little lever you crank, and it just turns it on onto like a mandolin blade evenly, mm-hmm. and then just rolls it through. If you ever go to, like, a sushi restaurant, you can see, like, the sushi chef doing it with his knife. You know, Right. Like, like, like icon with that, perfectly, the, which right, is, right,
0: <laughs> with the, like, single bevel
1: knife. Yeah, and yeah, he's, yeah like, like, which is, probably takes years and years of practice, and my hands aren't <laughs> steady enough for that. So, so, luckily, someone made that machine. They're not cheap. It's just, like, a plastic machine. And it's kind of fragile in a lot of ways, and it's pretty pricey, but as long as you're careful with it. But it's a pretty cool machine, yeah. It's just, you can do anything on it, really. Apples, really anything. Okay. That is one thing you do get quite a bit of trim off of. But unfortunately, so if you, you probably lose like 30% of the kohlrabi. So that's one of the things that we'll take that we'll salt it and ferment it or use it for staff meal or so. Okay. So. And then what did you do with the sheets after they came out? Like oh, how, we just pressed, pressed it. So just we're kidding. pickling a lot of the shiso lately we're getting from Zachland farm. So you're left and we just use like nice cider vinegar. So you're left with like a really flavorful kind of like shiso flavored cider vinegar after. So we just press it in a, like a couple spoonfuls of that and some uh, smoked kelp oil okay just let it sit for a few hours right right and then it's just weighted like weighted in the fridge oh so we vacuum press it just press it in a vacuum bag so it would be the same outcome if you had more like if you pressed it down or just with your hands let it sit but uh this just speeds it up and kind of basically the pressureizes all the flavor into it really quickly.
0: Right. So, got it. Okay. Uh, how do you make the choices around the proteins that you've got? So albacore tuna that makes sense to me. And yeah.
1: then there was lamb
0: neck on the menu last. Night. Yeah, it just
1: it's available available. Sure. Um, that was the one thing when we did share place we really didn't serve that much protein. So with the taste menu we serve a lot more. So when we were doing shared place we were able to use quite a bit more um, proteins from the island. We'd buy like a half half a cow from one of the farms here every year, and then a couple of lamb here and there rabbits we get randomly from friends too lots of duck eggs this year i just kind of try to find more like we used a lot of like beef tongue lamb tongue hearts and stuff like that so now with the tasting menu we kind of will we still do use like the offals and stuff like that but we try to get people like slightly more comfortable meats because <laughs> <So, laughs> <Right, okay. laughs> i mean they don't have a choice so i don't want to <laughs> stick everyone with like beef heart one night even though like but we will throw it in there here and there so right okay. yeah I don't just put on what's available and
0: yeah and that's i'm guessing that's also has to be cost driven like you're mm, yeah yeah
1: it's easier to sure. kind of tight like put into the tasting menu because it's not a oh, really big piece of protein either like mm-hmm. we're doing about like two ounces three ounces tops for the tasting menu mm-hmm. but Yeah, cost is a factor, but it kind of balances that with a lot of other dishes. If we have a way more expensive protein, you know, if we have halibut on for the fish, maybe, which is, you know, really costly, like, we'll just compensate somewhere else. A lot of the other dishes really are. There's a lot of labor involved, but, like, the vegetable ones, you know, a lot of it's byproducts, so, like, it kind of balances the cost of the proteins for sure. But the labor is the expensive part. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course.
0: Well, we were remarking last night, I wonder if you get input from guests on this other than us i'm about to give it to you which is it struck us as incredibly good value like this tasting menu for effectively 10 courses for 75 dollars yeah, like it's you just find don't the balance. see that
1: yeah yeah i know like we probably will raise it next year it was originally supposed to be 85 yeah <laughs> okay. And it was like it was a mistake on my part we started with 75 it was supposed to go up to 85 after like when the peak season started and we were gonna add the other course but it ended up like what we put out on the website started with the extra course at 75 and oh, no, we already sure. had so many bookings so it's kind of my my bad which is t- totally my fault and i'm paying for it but <laughs> <laughs> literally so yeah it was supposed to be 85 so it is yeah we've had quite a few people say it's we should be more expensive which is great mm-hmm. the, but um you know we're still making it by with the lower <laughs> the lower <laughs> price but and it's it's a it's a hard balance because Especially with tasting menu, I think a lot of people have expectations going in. They're like, oh, the courses are going to be tiny and you're going to leave hungry, which is the case sometimes. And we've also had quite a few people saying the portions could be smaller. So we're always trying to find the balance of, you know, leaving content, not overly stuffed, obviously, but not leaving hungry. And then, you know, not feeling like you got gouged or anything. So, yeah, no, it is. It's a cost tough and balance, yeah. isn't it?
0: Right. Yeah. And- and people come in all shapes and sizes, literally, yeah, exactly. and have different expectations. Yeah, and I think we had
1: one person this year. It was funny. It was like they it wrote it on maybe Google. They said, you know, they left super hungry, and the portions were tiny. And then they actually mentioned that. And that I'm a really tiny girl, and I was trying to think, really, like. <laughs> I, like, I would have trouble getting through it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, not trouble, but I'd be like... You'd be very... Yeah, I would be fine after the and end like, not need to eat anything, you know. But So, I was trying to figure out, like, what the menu was that night, if everything was a bit lighter, like... <laughs> or, like I don't know. So, Maybe she was here for a marathon. Yeah, so. I don't know. It <laughs> was a funny one, kind of, because that was the only one. Then we probably had, like, at least 20, like, people that we know, like, yourself, saying, like, it's, you know, could be a bit smaller, you know, like, some portions, so... It's a tough one finding find the balance because everyone's so different. So,
0: Tell us about staff meal. I've just got a few more questions. I appreciate you yeah. got to get back to it. But is staff meal, how do you guys do it here? And maybe just comment on, to me, my limited experience working in kitchens is one of my favorite parts. Like people come together and it's it's social and brings the team together I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that generally
1: yeah I've, like, it's a funny one this year we've like there's been times when we haven't done it because everyone's on such a different schedule sometimes like in the past years we used to try to like we always eat at 3 30 or 4 and it's basically just quite often very vegetable driven we almost have, always have like one vegetarian on staff or pescatarian so we try to keep it just vegetable so now I'm happy to eat less proteins too so I'll just save like a, like a steak once in a blue moon for treat or something but um so it's usually vegetable driven and it's just basically using what we have in the past like right now we're operating with like way smaller staff with the uh tasting menu and the like the new formula we're using but um in the past we've had like five people in the kitchen so we'd take turns kind of and just have fun doing it depending on what you want to do it's just it's all over the map but like this year is kind of funny it's like a lot of the People in the front of Alice have kids, too, so they're on a busier schedule. So they, they're coming in just right before they start. So it's we're not always sitting down this year. Just everyone's a bit busier, but we try to. So, <laughs> so, so it's a bit all over the place, sure, really, to be honest. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's a goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you give any tips? This uh, What I'm trying to do for my listeners is get some thoughts from chefs who work all day, every day in the business on things that people can do at home. That'll improve their own cooking game in the kitchen. And this could be anything from, you know, I was talking to one fellow in California a couple of weeks ago. And he said one of the best things he ever did as a cook was learn to use a thermometer. He said when I first started cooking, I was hacking into meats all the time. And every chef I know uses a thermometer, but virtually no home cook does. And I think that's a super simple thing that people could pick up. Anyway, if there's a dish or a technique or anything that you would encourage people to try at home that could Mm. could help them out. Tough one. Yeah. Well, not a tough one, but just think about it. I don't know could even be like trying fermenting stuff right which
1: most yeah, people i'm guessing you try, don't try do to it. use up like scraps like i find a lot of people will, like when they're cutting vegetables like throw mm-hmm. away a lot of totally good stuff like even if you're buying organic vegetables like in, like throwing away the peel and stuff like that or even like the apple peeling apples just saving that and like try to ferment a quick vinegar or something like that i don't know just anything just try to throw away less maybe use up scraps or even just yeah make stalks with it or anything really just just throw away so much you see vegetable trim sometimes even in kitchens it's crazy just the amount of stuff people throw out, just like topping peppers is so much you know three good bites still on the top (laughs) like just things like that yeah so just cutting back on waste or you know that's what we do for staff meal basically is like if we do want like a perfect shape or something, which we don't really do that much here, we don't punch stuff out. Like the kohlrabi may be one thing where we have more trim than anything, like on the menu now. But, but we'll never throw out the trim. Like so, even if we're busy, we'll just put it aside and either eat it or like even if we're too busy, we don't need it. I'll quite often just eat it while I'm making it. <laughs> just, right, come <laughs> cut staff. meal time you're not that hungry, just because I ate. Like you know. 500 grams of coal rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> 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 as long as it's not going in the garbage basically yeah. so, totally and for people who want
0: to experience what you're doing obviously come to galliano come to pilgrim when you make a decision on what you're doing on pop-ups when where will we learn about that, that yeah on so the
1: website or? yeah the website and this is the first year we started using talk which is great mm-hmm. so it's freed up a lot of time and just for the reservations but we we're able to put like special events on there so I don't know how to use it so well because I'm super tech bad, tech stupid. So uh, eventually I'll learn. But it, we'll probably throw it up on Talk. And that'll be like a link through our website and our website as well. So we're just kind of still updating the website slightly since we changed the format. So probably be on the website. And then if not Talk, always a good place to see it too. Okay. Or and, Instagram's and t- obviously a good one too. That's like, right. We right. <laughs> actually dropped our Facebook page because I was never on it. <laughs> a lot of people thought we were closed because we had not done anything on our Facebook page for over a year. And it just is so hard to keep up with all the different social media mediums. So we pretty much just moved to Instagram now. So that's the only one we really take care of. So that's an easy one to put events on. Here.
0: Okay, good. That's good to know. What I did for, because I, I think you and I may have similar views on technology. Yeah. I just linked my Facebook page
1: for Chef Chefdemoni to the
0: Instagram thing. Yeah. So every time you do one, it does the other. And I'm like, good, it updates. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. Thought it, yeah. I got rid of my personal Facebook too, like two or three years ago, I think. So like even then, so like I was trying to actually do something on the pilgrim Facebook and I realized I had to re-sign up my, uh, I just, uh, okay, I just stopped doing it. Stop doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, like, yeah. Yeah. I gotta go back to the yeah, kitchen. I get an extra 10 minutes of sleep every night. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: No kidding. Yeah. Well, listen, Jesse. Jesse, thanks so much for yeah, taking the time. You're, I know welcome. you're super busy. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse, for a great dinner experience and for taking the time to speak to me in the midst of what I know was a really busy morning. I really like Jesse's approach to this business and his comments on how dietary preferences can affect hours really struck home. Now, Don't get me wrong, Pilgrim takes very, very good care of all of its guests, and I've never met a cook or a chef who wouldn't bend over backward to accommodate an allergy. I just think sometimes our preferences have to be assessed in context, in remote places, in small places, in places with limited or focused menus. Basically, if you say you're gluten-free and then eat the bread, the kitchen is going to be mad. Again, it's just a thought. I'd love to hear from you if you've got some views on this topic. Remember, you can avoid the hassle of ever downloading the Chef podcast again just by subscribing to the show, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms. And as always, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to give a star rating to Chef And if you've got a little more time, please leave a written review. Taking either or both of those steps really does help other people to find the show i love to hear from you, too. So if you've got a comment or a question for the show, a topic suggestion, if there's a chef out there that you'd love to hear from, or perhaps you know a lawyer who's got a neat food connection uh, or a neat connection to the food industry, maybe you are a lawyer with an interesting connection to the food industry, please get in touch. You can message me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I struggle with my humble abilities to keep up with all three or send me an old-school email to graham at Cheftimony.com. Okay, thanks for joining me once again. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you in a week, right here on Cheftimony.